0: I was inspired at eight years old watching both my parents learn to fly, and then fascinated by the jets and the trip to the moon of the 1960s, and that shaped my life and brought me to where I am today with electric airplanes.
1: We're incredibly fortunate today. This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. Have the pleasure of sitting across from George By of By Aerospace. And he's the founder and CEO, and he's bringing to market electric aviation. George, thanks for taking the time to visit today. It's sure a pleasure to be here. Going into your comment and said, what influenced you early on? Let's talk about the early years of inspiration when you were a kid and all of that and how it influenced you today.
0: I would start with my mother, who is the daughter of a professor where I grew up in Corvallis and Oregon State University. Very creative. Of course, a great mom. She insisted that I enjoy and come to learn the arts. I played the violin starting when I was in third grade. I love sports. I played baseball. Dad and I played catch. I enjoyed very much the life of a kid growing up in all things Boy Scouts and all of that. But mom also infused in me the appreciation of the arts, insisted that I learn to draw and paint. Of course, she herself is a professional painter. So I love the sciences. My dad's an engineer, and that was a great influence for me, of course. But the creative side, the artistic side, the combination of, I guess, both sides of the brain was brought and a part of my DNA as a young lad. So as I mentioned briefly a moment ago, love flying. And from the get-go, I just dreamed of being a pilot, a jet pilot, and an astronaut. All of the excitement in the 1960s about going to the moon, all of that was captured as a young person, but colored very much by a mother and a father who helped shape, but also allow all that creativity, science, engineering, sports, to be also combined together with the arts and creativity and dreaming and imagining.
1: I think you and I talked previously and said, your mom, didn't she get her private pilot's license first? Exactly. So
0: back in those days, that was really something. In the early to mid 1960s, women did not fly. And getting her private license first Inspired, of course, the family and me as an eight-year-old in those days. Dad next, uh, both became private pilots. We bought a Piper Cherokee 140, believe it or not, as a family. Of course, in Corvallis, Oregon, with sea level, mild temperatures, that was a fun family airplane. There were two of us boys at that time. My sister came a little bit later. But we loved flying, and that captured me. I was hooked. I set the path for my life at that moment
1: going forward. Do you remember the first time your mom gave you control?
0: I do. It was an amazing feeling. You kind of think two-dimensionally.
1: How old were you when you did that?
0: That was all between 8, 9, 10, wow. up till 6th grade, 12 years old. So all of those early experiences of flying, you go from a very two-dimensional experience in life to, of course, flying is three-dimensional. And going left, going right, going faster, going slower— was something that was pretty easy to capture. But going up and down, that was like, oh, this is different. This is a roller coaster. It was great fun.
1: I think about the perspective that changes when you're at altitude versus the perspective you have as a kid on the ground and the influences for your mom. And so your mom and dad flew. Did your brother have the same joy of flying that you had?
0: You know, he did. And he got his private license later in life as well. But unlike me, I went into the Air Force and pilot and flying and so forth. My brother David went into the Navy. So he took a different track, still enjoyed aviation and flying as we did as a family, but just as a private pilot.
1: One last question, as you're thinking about as a kid, we all had very favorite things that we played with. Was there something that you played with that foreshadowed your interest in aviation? (laughs)
0: Well, I remember at Christmas time, Legos were popular back then as they are now, perhaps a resurgence interest in Legos. But I remember getting Legos. Some kids would make a truck, some kids would make a house. But George, I made an airplane and I took the wheels that were meant for a vehicle and I took off the rubber and I made a little kind of a hook thing so that I could take some string from the top of the stairs run it across and over the living room down to the fireplace mantle, tie it off, and then I could fly, quote, quote, my airplane down the string to land on the fireplace the mantle. The first
1: George By test <laughs> facility. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. my first airplane design and tried it out, of course,
1: got it flying. So going from the early years, single-digit years, were you guys pretty much in the same area of the country as you grew up? We grew up in the Northwest,
0: Oregon and Washington state.
1: And so you went through the, you know, elementary school and high school and all that stuff, played sports. And then at some point you went to university. And did you start ROTC when you first got there or was that something that came to you later?
0: At the time, I wanted to go back to Oregon State where dad was an alum. Dad, my father got his engineering degree at Oregon State. My grandfather was a professor at Oregon State on loan from UCLA. So I was thinking, that's where I wanna be, that's where I wanna go do engineering like my father. But having moved to Washington State, just across the river in Vancouver, across from Portland, there's a language requirements issue. And so I ended up looking at the University of Washington after going to a community college there in Vancouver for the first year. So I applied for ROTC, and an ROTC pilot scholarship. What year was this? This is going back to 1975 and 76.
1: Post Vietnam. Correct,
0: just after Vietnam War, there was a tremendous drawdown of the military, of course. And while I was fascinated with flying, the military was really not interested in new pilots at that point. So very, very scarce in terms of pilot slot availability. And of course, getting any kind of a scholarship for that was remote, very remote. When I first made my application, they said, George, this is great, wonderful, love your grades and your sports and Boy Scouts, but we don't have a slot for you. We can make you an alternate. Wouldn't you like to be an engineer? And I said, thank you so much. I want to be a pilot. I'm going to stay on focus here. I'm here to be a pilot. So back and forth, back and forth. And patience, patience over some time. Six months later, I got another letter in the mail, said, George, By, welcome to the United States Air Force. We have an ROTC pilot scholarship for you. And so with great anticipation, I began my next step in life.
1: Today, we'd call it snail mail. So it came in snail mail, uh, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember when you read that? Oh, my goodness, yes. That was a huge day. There's pivot points
0: in our life there's moments where you can go one direction or another. And that was one of those big moments in my life that shaped the next 15 years.
1: The funny part about that is I got an army flight scholarship as well. And when I was in it, it seemed to be easy. I don't know whether it was because I went to Tennessee and nobody flew, but nonetheless. So do you remember the first day that you walked out to meet your flight instructor?
0: So in the Air Force ROTC, you had a flight screening program between your, you know, you had freshman, sophomore, and then before your junior year, there's a flight screening program, 25 flight training hours. Mm -hmm. Mine was 21. Oh, there you go. So same kind of a thing. So the idea was basic airmanship skills. We'd already taken the AFOQT test, which was an aptitude test to even be considered to be a pilot. He had to maintain grades in the sciences and engineering, all of which kind of were gatekeepers to a very high criteria and a very small requirement for the number of pilots at that point in, in our country's history. So the flight screening program was what I would call a high pucker factor. They're not there to help you. They're not there to give you your private license. They are there to screen you from becoming a pilot or somebody that may not have the aptitude that they were hoping for. So a fair amount of stress, a fair amount of focus. The civilian contractor was a very nice guy, but he had a job to do. So again, it wasn't put his arm around me and we'll slog on through this. It was, here's the deal. Here's your syllabus. There's the airplane. Let's get this done. So- of course, the initial training, uh, fairly straightforward, dual training, but I remember vividly taxiing down after what I thought was a training flight, and he said, stop the aircraft right here, of course, next to kind of a parking area, and I was a little bit surprised. He looked over at me, and he goes, your airplane, and got out. So my first solo, and of course, every pilot remembers their first solo, you know, it's like, okay. Okay. There's nobody here to help out. And at that moment, you kind of have a reckoning.
1: Do you remember your downwind leg?
0: Oh, I do. I, I remember that first turn to final, that first line, you know, everything.
1: Vividly, right? Where we are similar is I did the same thing in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I can see it like it's yesterday. And, you know, you're going downwind, turn base, and then you go final. And you go, oh, I've got to remember all this stuff. And then you start getting close to the runway. And you go, this is kind of the moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that first touchdown. Absolutely. And of course, I've done it a million times since then, and I can't remember any of them. But that first one, you always remember. And then the first solo, of course, in the Air Force later in the T 37, later in the T 38, and of course, on through my career. Those moments capture you. Emergencies get your attention and are embedded in your memory, shape you. The judgments, the training, all of that is a part of your life, all come together in those moments.
1: I was thinking, do you remember where your first cross-country flight went to?
0: I don't know if that I do remember that. To your point, it's getting out of familiar area and going somewhere
1: novel, new. You know, the thing that struck me about all of that is you have to plan and execute your plan. And then you have to be able to follow the plan that you set up. And then you have to be able to go in and get signed off and come back. And you go, well, I didn't kill myself along the way, so that's plus. And then you think as you're up there, if I have a mechanical, where am I going to go? And I think all of those things come forward as we're in your office with all the whiteboards and all the notes and all the effort here to bring this technology forward. I'm really interested in the formative transition. So you finished flight program and you're finishing ROTC.
0: Yeah, I worked hard. I loved the Air Force. I loved even ROTC, the college days. In fact, I rose up through the ROTC ranks. I finished my senior year as a cadet colonel, and the wing commander for the organization there at University of Washington was a real honor and responsibility. There are two wing commanders. Uh, the school year split into two, so it's a, it was quite an honor for the two of us. The two of us were distinguished graduates, which launched me into, of course, getting my second lieutenant, and then on to pilot training. But as a DG, I I was able to pick where I would go to pilot training. And in those days, Williams Air Force Base was the premium location in Phoenix, Arizona. And that, again, kind of accelerated me in that next step of my life, going from engineering school to becoming a commissioned officer, and more importantly, that step into pilot training, undergraduate pilot training for the Air Force.
1: As you look back, and so you've arrived in Phoenix and you're getting ready to do your training, when you look at the advantages to having a degree in engineering versus not having, how did that affect your behavior at flight school?
0: It helped in terms of understanding the airplane that I was flying, in particular, the aerodynamics of the airplane. It kind of set expectations as I maneuvered the plane and went through the flight envelope of the airplane. But really, I think what the Air Force was looking at was a method to screen the aptitude, both physically, dimensionally, the Air Force pilot aptitude requirements, as well as the science and engineering mental aptitude of its pilot candidates. And by using the sciences, that brought together those two features in its pilots going through training in those days, like myself.
1: So, you flew a variety of platforms. Yes. What was the first, I guess, jet that you flew?
0: So, I started with the T-37, Cessna T-37, twin jet, primary Air Force trainer, subsonic. And it basically had the same performance of the classic P-51 from the World War II era. So, it was a kind of a 300-knot airplane, a little bit more. But it would do all of the loops and barrel rolls and formation flying instruments, the traffic pattern work, all of the basic fundamentals of going from a private general aviation kind of a pilot into the introductory experience, sensations, environment, the parachute and the helmet and the oxygen and all the rigors of that initial screening, primary phase of flight training. And it was meant to be tough. They deliberately, as few pilots as they were even bringing to undergraduate pilot training, they wanted even fewer to graduate. The attitude was not, we're here to train you. The attitude was, we're here to screen you and reduce this class size because we have very, very few pilot requirements. Again, this is now the late 70s, early 80s kind of time frame. And as many of us remember those days, the military was being trimmed way, way, way back, Jimmy Carter days. So very few resources, very few pilots. The few that were getting through had just a few slots available. So T-37 screening, I did very well. I was fortunate, worked hard. Went into T-38s, so going from subsonic to supersonic and oh my goodness, it was awesome. I loved it. And talk about defining George by. I just consumed this experience. And again, I was very fortunate. I did very well and was able to graduate as a distinguished graduate in the top 10%. Went on into my Air Force career as a pilot with my wings and eventually able to use those skills to train others and, of course, went to several of the various operations and wars and things that happened in the late 1980s and early 1990s.
1: We were talking this a little bit before as an instructor pilot. And so you've got your skill sets that you've learned and brought and honed. And then you start bringing in the students. What I was interested in is how much of the lessons on the airframe you brought forward to what you're doing at by Aerospace from watching what it did do and watching mistakes from the student pilots and so on.
0: As you kind of look back, look forward, look back, look forward, the experience, the technical piece, the airmanship, the judgment required as an Air Force pilot, particularly in my Euro-NATO joint jet pilot training days, flying the T-38 as an instructor, training new NATO fighter pilots or student pilots who were to become fighter pilots. It was a combination of undergraduate pilot training and introduction to fighter fundamentals. So UPT and IFF, very unique fighter program. Then again, starting in 1983 to 1988, I was there training these students from NATO. And then at the end, I was a pilot instructor trainer. In other words, I trained the new instructors. But as a part of that, there's a kind of a tenacity and grit the ability to manage stress. That is simply a requirement in the three-dimensional chess game of being a fighter pilot. You've got the physical experience, you have to manage your aircraft, and of course a threat that would very much like to kill you. So it's a serious game. It absolutely captures everything, all of your entire capabilities, physical and mental is finely tuned in this. But the key thing is, you've got to know your limitations you go right up to the edge, but not beyond. And understanding yourself and the other people that you're working with on your side, as well as your enemy, is the part of what I carry forward as an entrepreneur, as a business person, in a cutting edge development of a new technology and a new company, both again, working with our team and the expectations of the team, as well as understanding the potential threat the competition if you will that's out there or will be out there so very much the life experience for me from my military days that shaped and formed who I am today with business
1: as you look back over all of your military flight experience is there one story my father-in-law is a fighter pilot and so there's stories is there a favorite story or memory that you have as a pilot in the Air Force You know, like I said, there
0: were many of the operations that I went to. Uh, By that, I mean wars. There were skirmishes, El Salvador and Peru, where there was a context of combatants. There was Panama, which was a relatively short engagement regime change that was underway there. And then, of course, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, which was a full-on battle to end all battles at the time the front page of the major magazines, Time Magazine, et cetera. It was the crescendo of the Reagan era, if you will, leading into what's dominating our worldview and what would we allow with this worldview with the Berlin Wall coming down, but still these large remnants of the Cold War and Saddam Hussein kind of controlling the vast amounts of oil as well as the Kuwait invasion and so forth. So that was the backdrop of kind of going on a mission with my crew in the C-141. I remember vividly very uh, late at night flying in with a load of bombs, rockets, and bullets in the C-141. C-141, for those that don't know, is a four-engine transport built by Lockheed Martin. Marvelous airplane, about the same size as a Boeing 707. So if you can kind of picture a 707, maybe. Only it was a high-wing cargo plane by Lockheed Martin. Did a marvelous job transporting troops and cargo into the various areas that we had to resupply. And in those days, of course, making preparation for, you know, ultimately the engagement of the war. I flew in there one night into uh, Saudi Arabia. The war was fierce. Just underway. The air war had just started.
1: Where did you depart from?
0: So I forward deployed to Spain uh-huh. and flew out of the Madrid area. So the redeployment of the supplies coming from the States or from depots in Europe, we then would forward deploy into Saudi Arabia to be launched into Iraq. What's that flight time? So typically it was five and a half to six and a half hours going in and an hour or two or three on the ground and then turn back around. I would generally have a 12 or 13 hour uh, day, sometimes 18 or 20. My longest day was 36 hours, which is just sometimes what you have to do.
1: Just stop for just a second on the story. I think about focus and attention. You know, as you're flying a dangerous load, you get on the ground, you wanna get unloaded and you wanna get out of there and get the plane back in the air. And I think about the various waves of focus Relax, focus, relax. Did you find that that conditioned you for what you're doing now? Yes. So, when you're at
0: war, of course, in that circumstance, it was very serious business. Our airplane was full of explosives. I wasn't carrying crayons and Legos. I wasn't carrying furniture or electronics. I wasn't carrying people, although sometimes I did carry soldiers. I was carrying bombs for the bombers and fighters to carry on into Iraq. And you definitely have a, again, talk about pucker factor. There's a level of stress, background stress. Nothing can go wrong. I mean, you and your team and my team, my crew, are paying attention to every detail because our lives depend on it. Of course, the team that we're giving these bombs to, the weapons to, their lives depend on it too. And ultimately, we're looking out and we care about the soldiers that are on the ground. But, oh my, yes, talk about intensity. There's no doubt about it. So I'm flying into this space in Saudi Arabia, and literally as I taxi in, we open up the back doors, the armament teams come right up to the back door and immediately start unloading these 500-pound bombs. And they are going right on to the British, in this particular case, the British fighters one by one, and they're going right literally into battle. It was a rhythm of as soon as they're unloaded, they're going right to the airplanes. I went into command post to get my exchange orders as they were doing this. Dark night, just the glow of the lights on the tarmac, and the base sirens go off. Just wail, screaming sirens, loudspeakers, MOP5 condition red, and... Again, for those that are Iraq veterans, they'll remember MOP5 condition red means we expect that you are the target and we expect that the target load on the way to get you is either nuclear, chemical, or biological. So what that meant was an immediate response, put on your poopy suits, you know, helmets, scrub each other, you go to into a team check thing, you check each other out, you put on these rubber poopy suits, you hit the wall in the bunker.
1: And it's delivered by a scud.
0: Yeah, two scuds were on the way. And our airbase was the target. And you have about two minutes or so between that notice and the expectation of the weapons of the missiles hitting. You know, it's a time. It's really an interesting time to to know that you're targeted. The know the weapons are likely very, very bad weapons, and not just explosive, but contain things that are very bad, and say your prayers. You reckon your life right there. What am I doing here? Does this matter? Has my life mattered? And say your prayers. And you go,
1: I sure hope I did my training properly so I know how to get in and out of my suit. <laughs> 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 really, was I supposed yeah. to zip that up or zip that up?
0: Yeah, and I checked my buddy well, and he's checked me out one more time. And of course, the impact was a little bit long. So the all safe siren went off. Unfortunately, some people were not so fortunate. The missiles did impact and cause casualties, but we were told to immediately evacuate. So all of the procedures and protocols were immediately dismissed. And it was literally race to your airplane, get it off the airbase as fast as you physically can. So no lights, no flight planning, no nothing. Get the airplane off the airbase
1: now. That's not something you do every day. No, no. No. That's quite a story, I'll tell you. I think about the adrenaline push, right? And so you run like hell, get your plane up in the air. At some point, you're sort of past a danger area, presumably. Then I think about the adrenaline crash, and you're still supposed to land the plane.
0: Well, just as a reminder, normally you refuel and you have a flight plan and you know where you're going and et cetera, right? Right we had none of those things. Nothing was loaded. It was just literally crisis, get the airplane airborne as fast as possible. So there were F-15s flying across in front of us. A tanker went went right over across above us. It was just get out of Dodge as fast as you can.
1: One of the things we didn't cover is you transitioned from fighters to a C-141. And I'm familiar with the inside and the back door of a C-141. Yes. I jumped out of it. So that's my familiarity. Nice plane, noisy when you jump. Yeah, very. Yeah. But how did you transition from fighters to 141s?
0: Yeah, so there was, of course, following my service at Shepard Air Force Base, there were opportunities for jobs, various fighter jobs or airplane jobs. My family wanted to return to Washington State and to where we grew up and so forth. My kids were growing up and my wife and I wanted to return to Washington State. So we looked for opportunities there and C-141s out of McCord had a job opening. So I applied and began my time there with almost immediately these various operations.
1: There's that moment where you separate from service and you go into the, quote, civilian world. What was that like for you? It was very
0: difficult because I loved the Air Force. I truly, truly did. Everything about it, it energized me. And of course, in that period of time, and for America, there were things that mattered that we were involved with that we're trying to make better. So all of that training, that judgment, working with my teams and my crew and airplanes and things, it was all fully realized all the potential was put to action the transition right there at the end though of course was kind of disappointing with the somalia just really tragic in so many ways not a high point for sure and transitioning into civilian life there was an immediate need and i enjoyed very much working as a civilian contractor for military development of airplanes it was satisfying but not in the same way that the military experience had been for the majority of the time from ROTC into T 38s and 141s. But that was equally important too, because as I transitioned into contract work under, as an employee of Flight Safety, being under a contract for Raytheon to develop the new T 6, especially towards the end of the uh, 1990s, I learned a great deal about the real world of business contracting government and military, military acquisitions. And both in a good way as well as a a deeply frustrating way. I love to tell a story. The T-6 is a tropoprop trainer that in those days was under development for the Air Force and the Navy. So we had equally disappointing results for both services they have a different mission and they have a different way of operating their airplanes. So both Air Force and Navy were frustrated and as part of the team to try to deliver to them a quality product, what I found was very frustrating in the bureaucracy, the acquisition and development process, the engineering process was always compromised. Rather than this ideal scenario in the Air Force where I was training to an optimum result, what I found in government. Contracts and development was every time there was a compromise that was made. And that was kind of inspiring. That was what transitioned me into entrepreneurship and in my own business.
1: So somewhere in there, the javelin showed up. Exactly. Talk about the transition into developing the javelin.
0: My thought was there has got to be a better way. We can't have 17 people determining paint color. It's not that hard to do. When we look at what the mission is, what a design against that mission and the elements of design that make that up, I imagined there was a better way. And so in my experience, of course, I was a fighter instructor trainer and taught aerodynamics. I was the aerodynamics course prime. I taught aerodynamics to the students in T-38s and then later to the instructors as well. And that was what we called applied aerodynamics. So that was aerodynamics with a purpose. And I imagine as an entrepreneur and a business person going from flight safety and Raytheon into the development of the Javelin that there was a design with a purpose. The characteristics of the airplane weren't theoretically or technically interesting, they were purposeful in having an outcome. And that was what the Javelin was. The Javelin in every way it was kind of a modernized T-38. Like the T-6 program, it was to be certified under the Part 23 FAA requirements. So there was an opportunity for civilians to use it as well as the military. Really fun, great people. We were able to invite industry leadership to, uh, to join us in the journey and just an amazing, amazing outcome with the Javelin.
1: You know, I think about basically a T-38 civilian version. Yes. And you think about today, it seems like there'd be a fair amount of desire for that type of platform. As you look back at the Javelin process and coming in to buy aerospace, what do you think the chief benefit to buy aerospace that you brought forward from the Javelin experience?
0: Yeah, the continuity, as I just mentioned, was a design with a purpose. There were technology advances in the early 2000s through 2007 that we captured composite structures, advanced turbofans, advanced aerodynamics, and the ability to analyze aerodynamics, not just in a wind tunnel, but also with digital analysis out of CAD, what we call computational fluid dynamic analysis. So... Computers starting to come to play, going from analog displays to digital displays and using GPS. So we were capturing all of these new technologies into the Javelin with great interest in the market from individuals, kind of a sports car of the sky, if you will, as well as militaries wanting performance and economy using civil-based call it aerodynamics and aerostructures and things rather than the aerospace and defense approach, which is of course, multi, multi times more expensive. So lots of fun, great experience, very shaping in terms of going forward with by aerospace. All of those same elements are true in capturing the benefits of electric technology, structures, aerodynamics, the digital transition out of the previous analog approach And together with that, the new regulatory background, the FAR Part 23 FAA certification process has also transitioned to a much more modern approach. So all of those shaping today by aerospace.
1: I think about the moment, right? Everybody has moments. There was a moment where you said, you know what, I think I'm going to pick a different power plant. Where you decided that electric technology in an aircraft was something you were gonna pursue. Take us to that moment and what you were thinking.
0: So go back to my roots, the Piper Cherokee 140, mid 1960s. That same airplane is still flying today, today. The Cessna 172 that I got my own private license on in the 1970s, still flying today. And the internal combustion engine And the aviation gasoline that it consumes still in use today so in the mid 2005 2006 timeframe, i was able very fortunate to have a red carpet tour of the very emergent tesla you know their warehouse and their r d center and the they had a couple of roadsters back in those days that were prototypes and i was fortunate to be able to be a passenger and give i was given a demo ride And of course, everybody was skeptical about electric. Mm -hmm. I remember, yes. It was like, are you kidding, electric cars? So everybody was dismissive, except for imagine the possibility of what the future might look like. Take those technology trends and imagine where they're going. And when the driver stepped on the accelerator of that little roadster, Of course, I was forced back in my seat, just like I was in full afterburner in the T38 back a few years ago. And I'm going, oh my goodness, this is anything but boxy and slow and sluggish. This is amazing. And so my mindset went from what does the future look like with one set of technologies to add another technology into that mix of emerging technologies And the key, of course, was the electric propulsion system, not just batteries, but motors, and the powered electronics that go with them. So the tool set added this special feature that, again, with applied aerodynamics or applied technology, we began to imagine the possibility of this great, great general aviation industry that was a part of my life from the very beginning. Mm now almost obsolete, 50 years old. You know, the current generation of airplanes, 50 years old. And applying these new technologies around the benefits of electric was the launch point then for, by aerospace. And specifically, not just the performance of electric, but the operating cost benefit of electric. The cost of electricity as an energy source multiple, multiple times less than aviation fuel, about $3 per flight hour, $3 per flight hour, compared to about $50 per flight hour for the aviation gasoline. So disruptively affordable, not a continuous line or lineage of evolution, but a break point so significant, we would say disruptive.
1: As you were talking, I'm thinking about the Tesla ride, right? And then you look at the flight platform and you have to imagine the curve of technology improvement to get a viable product. I mean, because at that time, I'm thinking about how do you take and extrapolate a vision when the technology is not keeping up with your vision? And then as importantly is how do you take and talk to your investors to help share that vision?
0: It's tough. Again, back to that tenacity, grit, courage scenario, the Air Force days. You have to have persistence and staying power because I could imagine the future, but that was 10 years ago. And imagine back 10 years ago with me, nobody shared that vision. There weren't people going, oh, yes, electric aviation, of course. Well, the standard
1: joke how long is the extension cord? Exactly. Yes.
0: So I would give a speech and people would be polite, of course, for the most part, but there was always somebody in the audience George, how long's your extension cord? And of course, everybody would laugh. Well,
1: they're not laughing anymore. Looking back over your career and life, visualization's a big part of an artist. Yes. And I think in the 3D flight world, you have to visualize where you are and where the other plane is, airplanes. All the time, right. And then I think about that ability to extrapolate. How far away do you think the Sunflower, which we have right up here, right, is from what you were envisioning 10 years ago? Pretty close or big difference?
0: Yeah, so... What we have here is a Cessna 172 that is very similar to what I learned to fly on back in the 1970s. Mine was smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the E-Flyer. E-Flyer. With the electric motor instead of the conventional motor. And this airplane, we used, actually we put an electric motor on a 172 in the early days just to begin the process of research and development. And we went to a prototype of this airplane next to demonstrate what the propulsion system and performance might be. And of course, going from this prototype, eventually will be going to production. But you can see the nose of the airplane, very, very different, very sleek, very low drag compared to boxy and heavy. It's kind of interesting here, of course, the propulsion efficiency is much better on the E flyer because the more of the propellers exposed to provide thrust as compared to the big nose, big square nose on the...
1: And you also had material advances.
0: Yeah, the composite airframe is half the weight of the aluminum airframe on the Cessna. The aerodynamic drag is twice as much aerodynamic drag on the Cessna as compared to the E eFlyer. So aerodynamics, structures, electronics... And inside, of course, is the secret sauce with the electric motor and batteries. A three-and-a-half-hour flight time carrying 450-pound payload. The Cessna 172 with full fuel, kind of equivalent, 433 pounds payload. Over 130-knot airspeed compared to about 120-knot airspeed. So in every way, electric, much like the Roadster, is performance as well as economy compared to the legacy aircraft that we're replacing.
1: I remember the first time I drove an electric car. It's all on or all off. I was herky-jerky going down the road because you'd try to take and get consistent on your power delivery. Or, and I think on the aircraft, it's all power right now. What's on the durability difference on the electric power plant versus the old Cessna 172? There's an extraordinary difference between moving parts the
0: manufacturer's name is Lycoming for the internal combustion engine. And again, a wonderful legacy engine going back 50 years, literally 160 horsepower, 946 moving parts. And of course they need to be maintained. All 946 moving parts need to be maintained and essential to flight. So you wanna make sure that it's maintained very precisely. And that becomes of course, a very expensive undertaking. An electric motor, we use Siemens electric motor, has one moving part, one moving part, 97% efficient in converting energy into torque and thrust. And of course, an internal combustion engine, 23, 25, 26% efficient in turning fuel into torque into thrust. So the bottom line behind an electric motor isn't just efficiency, but it's an incredibly robust design by definition, I mean, if you think about it, grandma's old fan from 1933 in the attic of your garage, maybe, or something, I don't know.
1: Still works. Still works. You know, I think about locomotives. They're powered electrically. Exactly. And ships. And ships. So you had the vision. Now you're in the process of getting approval to take it to market. That's government hoops you have to hop through. You're thinking 2020, maybe?
0: Probably early 2021, The FAA certification process is very rigorous, which of course is wonderful. We want it to be safe. The bottom line for them and for us is a safe product. And in this case with the E-Flyer, this two-seat E-Flyer that we're starting with, this mission is training. So all of new pilots like I was back in the 60s and 70s, or like you were, all of us will experience a high-tech, very efficient aircraft with the E-Flyer, but the number one criteria for you and for me is that it's safe to fly. Mm -hmm.
1: I think about the trainer market. I can't imagine what the maintenance costs are to run a fleet of aircraft. I mean, you, you remember in the Air Force, how many of your planes are up, how many of the planes are not up, and how many have been cannibalized for parts. And when you talk to the various schools about what you're bringing to market, what are their chief concerns? And for the folks that are advocates of your platform, what are they saying? The two things, of course, are operating costs and maintenance costs,
0: just as you just described. Today, they're trying to maintain a fleet of 50-year-old airplanes. It's not just the fuel that carries them aloft for a student training sortie. It's the time in the garage, it's the time in the shop to keep that motor going that's 50 years old. Imagine the parking lot full of cars that are 50 years old and you're driving them four, five, six times a day. The happiest person on the planet is gonna be, you know, the dozens and dozens of maintenance guys (laughs) staying busy perhaps to try to keep all of those cars on the road. Same thing, fatigue is a major, issue, the fleet literally is nearing obsolescence.
1: I think about what was the planned timeframe for the airframe to be serviceable until you go like, well, the wing will fly off or catastrophic failure.
0: The fleet of airplanes, as ancient as they are, are required by FAA regulation to have a 100-hour inspection and an annual inspection. And then the complete overhaul of the engine depending on the engine, but every 1,500 hours or so. So happily, while it's very expensive to maintain the fleet, they're inspected very, very regularly so that while it may be old and call it old shaky or something, I don't know, but they really do attempt to keep a very safe aircraft
1: as old as they are.
0: In, as contrast
1: to the Siemens electric motor, that technology's been around... Yeah, 100 years plus. In contrast, assuming FAA rules are the same for the power plants, I would presume, is there much maintenance you have to do to an electrical motor? There really
0: isn't. There's just the one moving part to inspect, the bearings. And it's a very simple five-minute inspection. The amount of cost against the 100-hour review and the annual review and the overhaul is extremely minimal. There's just connections, electronics and the one moving part. So operating costs is extremely low at about $3 per flight hour, but so is the maintenance cost. So in combination, the overall operating of the airplane is about maybe $20 per flight hour as compared to $110 per flight hour for a Cessna 172. So 110 versus 20.
1: That's a
0: game changer. That changes everything.
1: Given the current battery technology, what's the recharge time?
0: It's not much different than the amount of time needed to refuel with a fuel tank needing Avgas. So refueling is about oh 20 minutes or thereabouts. You know, you call the fuel truck to come out and they refuel and close everything up. The same type of an approach with a supercharger on the electric airplane as you taxi in. You turn the airplane over to The maintenance guy, he comes out with a battery truck or a supercharger, and the airplane's plugged in for 10 or 20 minutes between flights. The next instructor and student come out, about the same operating rhythm as a normal flight school, and you're on your
1: way again. You know, I think about if I'm the flight school operator, how many planes do I have to have to have 80 or 90% of them flyable, so you have a smaller quantity? That's a great
0: point, because right now, the number of airplanes being 50 years old, means the number in maintenance at any given time is much, much higher than a new fleet. So
1: you got to have a bigger fleet just to keep operational. Right. Jeez, this sounds like an armor unit in the military. Yeah. You know how many <laughs> tanks are broke every day and go a lot? Yeah, yep. Exactly right. As you see this coming to market for the folks that are going like, I want to know more, or I want to get in line, or whatever it is, what's the best way for them to reach out to you guys?
0: Buy aerospace.com and of course that's b-y-e like hello goodbye by aerospace.com and in the website you can of course see the program details about performance and its characteristics and price and things but there's also a link or info at to make inquiry and ask questions and engage in a potential process if you might be interested in an airplane
1: i think about your flight vision since kid to now And you have, I think, was it 4,000 plus hours military flight time? And now you're looking from this point, I'm sure you're looking out, 8, 10, X number of years. What do you see for electric aviation in a decade from now?
0: This transition from conventional to electric is underway. And I believe the recognition is beginning to take hold. I see going from two-seat to four-seat and then on in from a single-engine approach to a twin. It's harder to go faster, and it's more expensive. But drag costs you a lot in terms of energy. Drag is expensive in terms of the amount of energy required to overcome drag. So as the technology matures, the opportunity for larger and faster airplanes becomes realized. Starting with a trainer is an ideal performance and technical entry point. And of course, starting as a trainer is where there's such a critical need aligned with the requirement for new pilots that the airlines are demanding in the months, years, and even decades ahead. So a great opportunity from a business, from a technology, from an airplane. But as these pilots grow in their experience, a four-seat airplane with an IFR capability, Of course, a twin-engine airplane, heavier, faster, becomes realized as the technology continues to advance. So I see over 10 years, the maturing of the market, the integration of more electric into our experience as a culture, as an industry,
1: and specifically as general aviation. If somebody says, why George buy, why is George still pushing on the aviation advance? what would you say to him?
0: It matters. What we do, who we are, the legacy that we leave matters. For me, for George Bai, my life and my experience has been in aviation. Back from my formative years until now, that's where I exist, that's where my life is. And my upbringing, my faith all reflect on I wanna leave the world a little bit better place Grandma taught me, my dad taught me, my mom taught me, clean up your room, but not just to maintain it. Leave it a little bit better than when you were there. So my heart, my desire with our industry is to try to leave it a little bit better place. And so I'm inspiring my team. And When I give talks and things, I try to talk about not just the new technical opportunity, but leaving the world a little bit better place with a great airplane, a great technology, and a very clean and green outcome with that electric propulsion system.
1: The thing that I see as an observation is for the aviators and the potential aviators, mostly potential, that can't afford the cost of a flight education given the current price and technology, this could revolutionize the opportunity for the pilot to go in and get certified that's actually cost-effective. Thank you for mentioning that, because
0: that is so critical. Right now, 80% of student pilots drop out because of cost. And this approach with the electric propulsion system and that much, much lower cost means an opportunity is opened up for a much, much broader audience to experience flight, perhaps as a private pilot, but more importantly, from a professional perspective, perhaps as a career, as an airline pilot. And the opportunity, the gateway is that initial experience, the initial training, becoming a private pilot, and the expense and experience of that with electric, I think, will be very, very positive and clearly much, much less expensive.
1: Making a ding in the flight universe, George. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time and sharing your journey. I thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much.